0: Today we're going to continue the study of First Thessalonians. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. And for today's teaching, we will look at the first half of verse 10. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us insight and understanding to you and your ways and your word. As we look at this part of your scripture today. And I do pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 is the first mentioned of the return of christ in this letter and that is the return that during advent we looked at the prophecy of the two angels who appeared to the disciples right after jesus ascended into heaven and they prophesied that he would come just as he went i want to read to you those words from acts chapter one verses nine through eleven After Jesus had said some things to his disciples, he was lifted up while the disciples were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, which apparently means they must have talked about a few other things, But they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This presents a prophecy that the early church and Christians down through the ages have clung to. And today I want to talk about the return of Christ. As I've already said, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is Paul's first mention of the return of Christ. Interestingly, Paul refers to Christ's return at or near the end of each chapter in this letter. We're going to run through those real quick. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, which it's the last verse of the chapter, Paul writes, and to wait for his son, that is Jesus Christ, from heaven, who's going to return just as he went, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, which are just before the last verse, Paul writes, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, the Thessalonian believers, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. For you are our glory and our joy. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, which are the last verses. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he that is the Lord may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which directly precede the last verse. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died as believers in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. We're not making this up. This is God's word. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep, as if we're going to go to be with the Lord sooner than them. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. A lot of noise. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, who are still alive at the return of Christ, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In chapter 5, Verses 23 and 24, which are five verses, or four verses from the end of the chapter. And those last verses in the chapter are like Paul signing off uh, from writing the letter. And here's what he writes in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that Paul is endeavoring to drive home the importance of confidently counting on and looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, a return that will raise to life those Christians who have died while waiting for his return, and will raise those Christians who are alive when he comes, joining them together in one group. And this raises the question, at least for me, why is it important for Christians to confidently count on and look forward to the return of Christ? Why? Well, before looking at some possible answers, I want to present a short overview of, along with a few different views of the end times held by Christians down through the ages. And that is in spite of what you may hold your end time view to be, so please bear with me. The Bible's teaching on the end times and the return of Christ is called, by Bible scholars, eschatology. And the word eschatology means the study of last things. In other words, eschatology is the study of the timing and the events involved in and revolving around God bringing to completion his work of redeeming sinners and making them a people for his own possession with whom he will dwell forever in the new heavens and new earth. In the Bible... The end times are referred to as the last or latter days. Isaiah 2.2, Daniel 10.14, Micah 4.1. It's referred to as the day of the Lord. Joel 1.15, Amos 5.18, 1 Thessalonians 5.2. It's referred to as the age to come. Matthew 12.32, Ephesians 1.21. Hebrews 6.5. It's referred to as the last days. Who had the last days ministry slogan? Keith Green, that's right. It's referred to as the last days. 2 Timothy 3.1 and 2 Peter 3.3. And it's referred to as the last hour. 1 John 2.18 and the last time. Jude 18. I don't know if you know this, but... The words second coming in reference to Jesus Christ do not appear in the Bible anywhere. It just it isn't there. That's our words chosen to describe what the Bible teaches. The commonly understood events of the end times include the rapture of believers. This is taken from 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. A time of great tribulation, Matthew twenty four twenty one. The return of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ. And that's commonly understood to be for a thousand years. That return and millennial reign are wrapped up together. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. The judgment of unbelievers and believers, both living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.10, some speak of that as the great white throne, the judgment seat of Christ, and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 21, verse 5. So those are uh, aspects, events of the end times that I, my guess is you are all familiar with. Uh, and you probably hold certain views concerning each one of those things. The reality is there has been and continues to be differing opinions among Christians as how to interpret and understand specific parts of the end times, especially the rapture of believers, the great tribulation, or how we look at the last seven years, Daniel's uh, seven years, and the millennial reign of Christ. There are, uh, just to give you an example, there is a group of believers who have done the research, and according to them, the rapture, I'm going to use this word not offensively, I hope, but the rapture theory uh, began in the 1800s. Uh, Darby, who was a brethren, uh, preacher, uh was invited to a home of a lady who was known to have visions and dreams of a spiritual nature. And she uh, informed him that she had this vision uh, about a rapture, the church being taken up to meet Christ in the air, and uh, taken out of the world and up to heaven to be with God. Uh, And Darby uh, took that, and he began to incorporate that in his dispensational view of, of life, of the world, of uh, theology, and that's where that particular belief came from. There are those who uh, can show that it's possible the idea of the rapture uh, was part of church thinking, at least among some believers, years before that. But I'm only bringing this up to help you understand that We have certain views about this, and probably my generation was uh, highly influenced by the late great planet Earth, uh, a book which took uh, the church by storm back in the uh, probably 80s. Um, And uh, my guess is most Christians, at least in the Western world, uh, read that and uh, took that understanding of the end times And that's their particular view. There has been other views, and I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Most Bible uh, scholars understand Daniel's prophecy about the 70 weeks to include a 70th week. In other words, those 70 weeks end at the 70th week. And that 70th week is made up of seven years. These seven years are commonly divided in half, with the first three and a half years being years of God's judgment and and some hard times, but nothing near as bad as the second three and a half years, which are commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. Tied to these seven years is the idea of the rapture of believers, which is believed to take place during these seven years. Yet, even here, there are differences amongst believers on the timing of the rapture. Some believe Christians are raptured, that is, caught up to meet Christ in the air and taken back to heaven with him at the beginning of these seven years. Some believe the rapture takes place in the middle of those seven years. First, everyone goes through the three and a half years, and then the believers, both dead and alive, are Taken up to be Christ in the air and taken back to be with God in heaven halfway through. Now one of the things that should be obvious about those two perspectives is that uh, these, these perspectives hold that Christians will not have to suffer through the final three and a half years of God's most severe judgment on the earth or what is called the Great Tribulation. And in these first two scenarios, it is believed Christ does not come all the way to the earth at this time, but rather only comes into the air atmosphere or whatever. We have no idea exactly where, but he comes into the air and takes up those believers who are alive and those who have died to meet him in the air and then take them to heaven. This is not the return of Christ. This is not the second coming. It is the rapture. However, there is a third view which holds there is no rapture. No taking Christians out of this world, but rather leaving them here during the seven years, including the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, after which Christ returns. That would be the second coming, and sets up his kingdom over all the earth, and in this scenario, Christ returns once to fulfill his final duties before handing over all things to God. Now, as you can see from what I just presented, some Bible scholars understand the scriptures to teach a rapture, and some don't. Some believe Christians will not go through the three and a half years of the great tribulation and some believe they will and as for the millennial reign of Christ there are several differing views on that as well but for the sake of time and to not get into heavy debates with any of you we won't look at that and these are all taken from the same scriptures the same word of God so why bring this up? Well, my purpose for talking about this is not to confuse you or to make you think God's Word can't be trusted or to debate which view is correct. My purpose is to divert your attention in a different direction. What I want to do today is to reinforce that what matters most about the end times and the return of Christ is our mindset and our attitude toward the return of Christ. Not knowing exactly how it will happen is another matter. But what matters most is our mindset and our attitude. And it seems to me that when we examine Paul's references to Christ's return here in this first letter to the Thessalonians, it is our mindset and attitude toward his return and our life, how we live in expectation of his return that matters most. Today I want to focus on the mindset and attitude. So with this in mind, let's return to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And these words, where Paul writes, And to wait for God's Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. There are two major ways of looking at or thinking about the return of Christ in terms of mindset and attitude. And both are good and acceptable. Both are good and acceptable. And the reason is, is that both serve a good and acceptable purpose. And the purpose depends upon your situation and your spiritual maturity. So once again, let me say, one is not better than the other. Just different. Different for serving different situations and Christians at different places in their spiritual growth. The first way of looking at the return of Christ with a Christian mindset and attitude is based on being in an ongoing situation where the only reasonable hope of anything better is the return of Christ. Think of the the days of Noah. There was no hope of anything better. The flood came, and that created a setting for something better. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Things had gotten so bad, there was no hope for anything better. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Whoever moved into that area, hopefully something better came out of that. There are Christians who are imprisoned, who are tortured, who who can't get employment, who can't care for their own families properly because either government or people in the society are against them. Become a believer in a Muslim country having been raised in a Muslim home and being considered a Muslim yourself you face the probability of being put to death so there are these situations that are ongoing where the only reasonable hope of anything better is the return of Christ and when that is the case What we want is the right mindset and right attitude. The Thessalonian believers, I believe, from reading Thessalonians, were in just such a situation. Remember, they came to Christ in the days of being persecuted. This wasn't an open door of opportunity where they could come to faith in Christ and everything was fine with them and their culture around them. No, they were doing something that was against the culture that was thought to be wrong and bad by the culture and the culture didn't want them to do this. And so they were being persecuted even as they came to faith in Christ. And there are Christians today who are suffering under unremitting persecution. And these things can include imprisonment, torture, or even a cruel, painful death. Not only for an individual but also for all their family members. This kind of treatment of Christians is happening today at the hands of the Boko Haram and their supporters in parts of Nigeria. Barbie and I have seen video of atrocities, inhumane treatment of other humans simply because they're believers. They've come to faith in Christ. Paul himself had been on both sides of this kind of persecution. And I say that because on the one side he persecuted Jewish converts and he endured persecution himself after he was converted. In fact, he came to Thessalonica after having been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi for casting a demon out of a slave girl and preaching the gospel. He knew what it was to endure hard times and be persecuted for the cause of Christ. And it is from this kind of personal experience that Paul knows the reality of connecting one's view of the return of Christ to going through trials, tribulation, pain, and persecution. And I'm guessing that Stephen Stoney, who Paul was there and held the clothes the coats of those who were doing the stoning, Stephen stoning taught him this. Because if you're familiar with that story, he looked into heaven as he was dying and he saw Christ at the right hand of God. Stephen's stoning, I would think, taught Paul that one's mindset and one's attitude toward the hope of the return of Christ, is vital in the face of persecution. And I believe that Paul understood this well enough to speak about this not only to the Thessalonians, but in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, Paul presents a perspective of the end times and the expectation of the return of Christ that gives us an idea of the mindset and attitude that we are to have. And I want to read just verse 18 first, and then the last two verses of that section. We won't read the whole thing. You should be familiar with it. Paul starts with verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Alright, those are words. Just words. But if you're going to do something with those words, you have to have a mindset. You have to have an attitude towards God, towards life, towards your own situation that enables you to decide that the glory that is to be revealed is so more valuable than what you're going through that the sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to this glory that's a way of thinking you don't get there just by knowing the words just by reading the verse you have to work through your whole way of looking at life to get there And then Paul concludes this section with these words in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And these you're very familiar with, I believe. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the videos that we watched was of some of the Muslim men beating up, I think it was four older people, more barbs than my age. There was a ditch there. They beat them into the ditch. They weren't dead yet. They put uh, branches, dead branches from the area around there on top of them lit it on fire and uh, made the old folks stay in that ditch until they were dead would you think christ had abandoned you in that setting would you have any hope of the resurrection would the return of christ be of any benefit to your way of thinking to your attitude in those moments see, given our humanity, it is easy to lose hope. It is easy to lose hope. Or become so distraught and discouraged in the face of trials and tribulation or persecution that we end up forsaking God or even turning on God. How could you do this to me, God? Why would you let this happen? Why? Because it feels like God has forsaken us. It does feel that way. I'm certain of that. You see, in our humanity, we aren't looking forward. We're wanting relief. What I want us to consider today, what I'd like us to own today, is that we are no longer mere humans, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And as such, we have a realistic expectation. It is a realistic expectation that in spite of our circumstances, and in spite of how long we've had to endure them, and in spite of it looking like our suffering will never end in this life, Jesus Christ will return one day. And when he returns, he will make all things right and all things new yes this may go on seemingly forever in our own life the issue is not relief the issue is what is our mindset what is our attitude towards it and how does the return of christ that promised return that makes all things right and all things new how does that affect our mindset and attitude See, the right Christian mindset and attitude toward the return of Christ becomes a source of comfort in the midst of hard times. It becomes the assurance that God is with us in spite of what it may look like or feel like. And it becomes the encouragement to press on, knowing that the worst of life here on earth will change one day. And the change will be for the better and forever. There's a second way of looking at the return of Christ. And this way is based on your love of God. Your intimacy with God. Your longing to be with God. And that, and the realization that you need A setting. For all of this to happen in its purest, best way, you need a setting where nothing can come between you and God. Unlike the first way, this mindset and attitude is not driven or affected by our circumstances, be they good or bad. And I mention good as well as bad because I haven't mentioned good before because we... U.S. believers, we, and others in the Western world especially, we are faced with living in an age and a place of prosperity. And prosperity has a way of Allowing us to talk about the return of Christ without really wanting it to happen anytime soon. When one has prosperity, it is hard to have a genuine longing for the return of Christ. When one has tribulation and sorrow and pain, it is much easier to long for the return of Christ. However, even in an age and place of prosperity, there are those who have grown to love God, to enjoy sweet fellowship with God, and to have a soul-satisfying intimacy with God so as to long for the return of Christ. Because it is his return that opens the door to being with God without the hindrances of sin without the burdens of the old nature, without the temptations of the devil, or anything else that acts as a barrier to a relationship of mutual love and trust with him. I know I've told this story before. Let me tell it again quickly. Cecil Dennis was part of our fellowship a number of years ago. Back in the St. James day, he was an older gentleman, And uh, he lived reasonably healthy up until the last, uh, actually, week of his life. But before that, two weeks before that, something happened, and I forget the exact thing, that he had to be put into a nursing home setting. I went to visit him, uh, well, he was like this before that, but I went to visit him on the... uh, on a Saturday night uh, just to be with him because he couldn't be with us at church on Sunday and we sang some hymns and uh, prayed and talked and he expressed as he had before how much he longed to be with the Lord within a week he was gone my point is here's a man who had a reasonably good life he had all the things he needed he had a family that loved him Actually, he had two families that loved him. He owned a home, sold that home, and then asked the family that bought it if he could rent a room from them and stay in the home. And they let him, and they became his second family. He left part of his, uh, uh, what do you call it, to them? His estate to them, just as if they were his own family. He had two families. He had a good life. He longed to be with the Lord. I believe it is this sense that Paul it is in this sense that Paul said to die is gain in Philippians: 121 now it's true that he was conflicted as to uh, whether seeing Christ face to face or remaining and continuing the ministry was what was really important but when you read those scriptures in that portion of Philippians I want you to notice that even though both had their appeal, Paul speaks of staying here on the earth to do ministry as necessary. While when he speaks of going to be with Christ, he labels it as much better. Notice the choice of words. Staying necessary for the sake of the gospel. Going to be with Christ, much better better What is your mindset and attitude toward the return of Christ Do you long for it Do you look forward to it It is something is it something you want to happen sooner rather than later Is the promise of Christ's return a comfort in hard times even though you may never see it in your lifetime? Is it a reminder that justice will prevail? Is it an assurance that God is with you, even when it seems he has abandoned you? Do you find motivation to persevere through your trials, through your tribulation, or possible persecution and the promise of his return? It could be a far off issue for you. One that's going to come someday and you're not going to give it much thought. But in this first letter to the Laszlo believers, Paul makes it an issue five times. That's like a theme. Is it a theme in my life? Is it a theme in your life? Is it possible that you have come to the place where you look forward to Christ's return because you simply long to be with God so that you can fellowship with him unhindered by anything in yourself or in this world? Either way, either way, whether it's suffering or just a longing to be with him, either way, it's the right attitude, the right mindset. And this is what we are to have as followers of Jesus Christ. So it may be possible that you haven't given much thought to your mindset and attitude toward the return of Christ. And if that's the case today, because of verse 10 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to urge you to begin thinking about this matter. And, as you might guess, we will be returning to this topic again and again and again, and even when we get into the second letter to the Thessalonians. If you want to read more from the New Testament concerning the return of Christ, let me just recommend some scriptures. Luke chapter 17, verses 22 to 36. That's Luke 17, verses 22 to 36. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. And see that whole statement as a statement that includes the idea of the return of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. That's Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 10 to 13. And first Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 to 6.